Welcome to the Wealth Time Freedom Podcast, where we decode the psychology of money, uncover the principles of personal finance, and learn how to put them into practice. This is all about escaping the rut race so we can win the game of life. It's personal finance, but with a big old dollop of personal development. If you're looking for answers, looking for motivation, or looking for help, you're in the right place. Our mission for this channel is to help you get as far as you can on your own. And then if you want to go further and faster, we can help with that too. Let's dive in. Welcome to the second part of How to Invest Intelligently. Um, this is the third installment of the Escape Plan series. Um, my name is Ryan Monaghan. With me, co-host Terry Condon. You ready for this one, mate? Yes, I am, mate. Looking forward to it. So part one was largely about demystifying what investing is and why it's so important for financial independence um, and why most of us don't think about it until it's too late. Um, so what are we going to talk about in this episode today, Terry? I'm really keen to dig into, I guess, the how of investing now. So really just try and understand the most important mental models uh, that we can learn uh, to make sound investing decisions. Because I think, you know, when, uh, when, you, when you taught me this stuff, when I learned about some of these concepts, things started to become much clearer for me. Yep. Um, and I, my confidence improved dramatically. And, um, you know, what I thought was risky changed. Uh, what I thought was safe changed. Yep. And uh, it, it's, it was a quite a transformative experience to sort of to, to learn this stuff and then begin to like look at the world in a completely different way. So I really want to dig into what are these principles, how can we apply them, um, and what can we learn from the world's best decision makers across a range of fields, and even gamblers, believe it or not. Um, they've got some quite good mental models around making good decisions with regards to um, <laughs> probability because- that sounds dangerous. It does, right? It does. But I think one of the reasons it's important is because I feel like most people operate um, from the assumption that life is a game of chess. And um, the thing about chess is that it's a game of skill, uh, but that doesn't account for chance. Mm. But when we're talking about investing, we're talking about how to make decisions with irreducible uncertainty. So yep. we don't know what the future is going to hold. And it's not just down to skill, it's also down to chance. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. a better analogy to think about is poker. Um, and so you can actually learn some really good lessons from world-class poker players uh, to help you think more clearly about investing. Yeah, nice. That's an important note too, um, because you can make a really good decision and still have a really bad outcome. Just yep. like you can make a really bad decision and have a really good outcome. And sometimes when people have made bad decisions and had a good outcome, you actually have to go back and unlearn what you've learned through experience yeah. um, so that you can actually think more clearly about future decisions. Yeah. Oh, I think it's that particular mistake that you're talking about um, is resulting. That's, that's what poker players and gamblers call resulting. Yep. And uh, this is where we contribute ourselves up a lot because we look around at people's outcomes and we then assume or we equate their outcomes with the quality of their decisions. So we may see someone who is quite well off um, and we don't actually understand the, you know, the efficacy of the decision they made to get there. So we assume because they had a good outcome, they must have made a good decision Yep. and they also make the same assumption. So then they'll tell you what you should do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then by the same token, we look at people that maybe uh, chance came in and got involved. They made a good decision but had a bad outcome and we assume that the decision they made was wrong. And so we don't see clearly for this stuff. And I feel like this episode is going to be uh, a little bit like you know, like I said, if the future is fundamentally uncertain, it's really fuzzy, it's not clear. This is going to be like, I guess, um, tuning in the binoculars so we can see that future a, a bit more clearly and make 
um, better positions to, to sort of stack the cards in your favor, if you like. Yeah, cool. And we've been um, we've been pretty deliberate about how we're presenting this information because the reality is when it comes to making big money decisions, it's damn hard to think clearly and, and most of us don't. That's right. I think most of us, uh, we tend to let our feelings guide our actions and I think that is how our brain's set up um, to make decisions. We spoke about it in the supercharger savings episode, like the limbic part of your brain um, is where the decision sort of comes from and and that's quite dangerous when we, when we talk about investing because, mm. uh, if you let your feelings guide your actions, what you'll tend to feel is wrong. Yep. Um, there's a, there's an instinct called the hurting instinct, which is a, a cognitive bias, uh, that's pretty systematic, which means that most of us fall prey to this instinct. And it basically just means we want to follow the crowd. Yep. Um, and that's really, really dangerous because what the crowd's doing, uh, it, it, you know it often leads to financial disaster. We know that the research shows that people will buy high and sell low. So if it looks like it's a good market, we're going to rush in and buy. Um, and if it looks like things are going no good, then we sell. And that's the exactly the wrong way to go about investing. Yeah, yeah. Number one, you shouldn't be making those decisions and making money moves. But number two, you shouldn't be just using your... um. Uh, your feelings to guide your actions because of fear of missing out or uh, fear of losing out. Yep. Yep. Um, and the good part about that is we can, I guess, we have enough information to know that that's true. Um, so we know that, and we are t- talking about this earlier today, um, that people are actually predictably irrational. Yeah. Um, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. It's just a bunch of science and a bunch of research that's come out, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years, to feel called um, behavioral economics. So there are a bunch of smart people uh, that have done a lot of social science and studies mm. around how we make these predictable mistakes with our decision-making. Um, and we make them because our wiring is set up for a world that existed a couple of million years ago, a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, but we actually live in a very different world now. So those feelings that we let dictate our decisions, uh, they systematically lead us astray. And, um, you know, that wiring I'm talking about, we're pretty much wired to flee from danger. And uh, we're, we're wired to attack opportunity. And that that's actually the complete wrong way to think about money decisions. Um, because if we flee from danger, then we're going to be selling when things are falling. And if we attack opportunity, when we're going to be buying when things are rising. And uh, that's that's a recipe for the worst money decision you could make. All right, cool. Well, let's dive into the specific tools that people need to, I guess, adjust the lens, like you were saying before with the binoculars so that, um, you know, we can look forward and see, a, see, a, see the future with a little bit more certainty, um, and, and make it a little bit easier to make those big money decisions yep. and a, a lot clearer. Yep. Awesome. I know there's some things that you taught me and then there's, there's also been some things that we've learned along the way, um, that kind of have refined our thinking around this sort of stuff. So what do you reckon are the, I guess, the fundamental concepts now that we've I guess, spend a lot of time in this space. Yeah, I would say um, understanding yourself is probably the the most important place to start. Um, you know, recognizing what type of investor you are, you know, how engaged or involved you want to be with yep. with your money life um, or if you'd re- uh, prefer to be somewhat passive and, um, you know, be able to focus more on your craft than on your portfolio yep. as such. Um, so I think understanding yourself and knowing yourself, and we've talked about emotional intelligence colliding with financial intelligence, um, yep. being so crucial, mm. um, 
really getting getting that right and and knowing your own psychology first yep. is is an important place to to start. And then I guess knowing where to put your money. Yeah. Um, understanding what your different options are too. Um, you know, what, there's what comes along with those options. Yeah. Yeah. What comes lo- along with those options? Um, the different characteristics of you know what what different products and and assets are out there. There's so many different options, but I guess you can simplify it and it's important to, to be able to simplify it um, so you can, can understand it a little bit. And if I can just speak to, to my experience starting out in this space and sort of trying to educate myself and, um, and even by the time I got to, to see you guys, I was definitely overwhelmed because of that choice. Mm-hmm. And we know, that, um, we know that more choices actually leads to less action. Yep. Again, this is another another one of the findings that comes out of behavioral economics. Uh, it is that uh, I think it's called the paradox of choice. There's a great book called the paradox of choice. Mm. Tony Schwartz is the guy that wrote it. Yep. And systematically, again, it shows that beyond a certain number of options, uh, our capacity to make a decision declines rapidly. Yeah. And so I feel like there are a lot of people just get stuck here because literally the options are endless. There are so many different ways of investing. So many different options. And then so many different types of uh, the way they explain it and labels. And uh, like we say, most of it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be how we simplify all that stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So you've said self-awareness is the first place to start. And then there's also understanding the different place you can put your money. Uh, are there any other sort of fundamental concepts you think that are really important before you uh, make a big money decision? Yeah, I think the next place would probably be to to think about risk and Risk can be quite a slippery term. It can be used in so many different contexts. Um, but what do you mean when you say risk? Why don't we define it? Define risk. Okay. So risk is, um, risk would be not getting what you think you're going to get. So the probability of having the outcome go the way that you didn't want it to go. Yeah. So you have a single, you have a certain expectation Yeah. and the risk is that it won't meet that expectation. Yep. Yep. Some people consider risk to be, um, obviously we talked about danger before, um, you know, risk in investing could be just losing everything. Mm. Um, but the way I sort of think about risk is, is not getting what you want. Yep. Yep. Effectively. So it's about how you understand the probability of that and then manage and mitigate for that. Cause the reality is we can't, we can't get any reward without taking risk. Yeah, that's uh, right. We know that if you sit in cash on the sidelines, you get no, actually you get punished. Mm-hmm. So it's about <laughs> finding that, finding safety in that process, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of mental models that you can actually adopt to help you make quick uh, risk assessments, Yeah, I guess you could say, um, because we have so many opportunities that come to us um, consistently. You know, you only have to be at the barbecue and have a good mate. Um, make a recommendation about a hot top, uh, a, a stock tip or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, so to be able to think clearly, you need to, I guess, adopt a few mental models um, and refine your thinking. So yeah. When when opportunities do arise, you can you can be um, quite objective. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the way I think about that is, um, yeah, you, know, you think about people that take big risks, and actually, what they are is experts at managing it. Hmm. Uh, so if I think about like the daredevils and the people that do all extreme sports, those people have built up skills and competencies that help them manage the risks they take. Yep. You know, so if I'm a, if I'm Sean White, world-class snowboarder, and I'm trying to do a, a double backflip for the first time, yep. I know ways to train. I know the kind of slopes that I should and shouldn't hit to do that. 
um, and I've learned those things over time. I feel like that's what we're talking about, right? How do we build those skills? Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Okay, what, so what else? So we've talked about self uh, self awareness. We've talked about knowing where you can put your money, how to evaluate risks and look at opportunities uh, very objectively. Is there any others? Yeah, so I think the last part of it is just understanding the rules of the game, understanding the environment um, that you're investing within. Mm. Um, you know, if you if you don't understand the rules, such as um, you know how the tax system works, for example, um, it can be really hard to to not get tripped up yeah. along the way. Um, you or know, trip you, yourself up. Or trip yourself up. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think if you're playing football and you don't know why the, the umpire's blowing his whistle, mm. um, it's really hard to get get really good and, and, and I guess, succeed yeah. in that way. Okay, perfect. So we know that uh, self-awareness is really important. We know that putting your money, knowing the different places you can put your money is really important. We know it's important to evaluate risk and opportunity and the rules of the game. Um, let's start with there with that self-awareness one. So what do you think, like, how's the best way to kind of think about this? I think probably the best way to think about it is um, that UK model that you, you came up with. Um, I USAI. Think, USAI. USAI. So, <laughs> U-C-A-I it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could be UK. Like Asai. You like Asai Berry? You like USAI. A, a chai bowl. Yeah, a, a chai bowl. A chai bowl. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's what it is. is what I based it off, yeah, because it sort of sounds a bit like that. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Um, so I reckon if you run through that um, you say yep. model, um, yep. that'll that'll help us sort of think through that self-awareness piece. Yeah, okay. So I guess what I looked at is how people usually think about these decisions in terms of understanding who they are first and, and understanding what you guys did as, as professionals. Uh, there's there's two sort of things they look at in terms of um, uh, how people deal with um, their, their tolerance for uncertainty. So that's that's the first sort of letter because this is a bit of an acronym, right? U-C-A-I, U-C-A-I. Um, how do people deal with uncertainty and ambiguity? And you actually don't really need to be an investor already to understand this. You just look around your life and say, am I the kind of person that uh, is okay with seeing a bit of grey? Uh, or am I someone that needs things very mm. clearly stated out and I can't deal with any level of uncertainty? Um, and if that's you, it's probably likely that in the financial part of your life, you'll be very similar. Um, but it's worth observing whether that is the actual case. Um, in that context, are you are you comfortable with there being some uncertainty? Because if you are, then the kind of things you can do with investing are a little bit different. If you can't deal with any uncertainty, then the kind of choices you can make with investing are very different. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. So you're you're saying, um, you, I guess you place yourself on a bit of a slider there, yeah. With um, comf uh, comfortable with uncertainty at one end, yep, and needing certainty at the other end, yeah. Um, where you sort of place yourself on that yeah. scale. Yeah, these all these are four dimensions. You put yourself on sliders for each of them. Yeah. So I might say I'm quite high. I'm quite okay with uncertainty. I'm I live in the grey. I like that. Yep. Um. And I think when you educate yourself, things things change a little bit, but it's important to know where you are when you start. Mm. And um, yeah, putting yourself on that slider really matters because it starts to tune your thinking around the kind of opportunities you'll pursue and the ones that you shouldn't. Yep. Um, the next one is capacity. So this is more about how much you can afford to put at work. Mm -hmm. So if I've got uh, 500 grand, I've got much more capacity to risk capacity to put to work than somebody who has 50 grand. Yeah. So you're saying capacity to lose. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So how much can you afford um, to put at work and to put at risk? 
Um, because like we said before, you need to take risk to get reward. Yep. Uh, so capacity really matters a lot because if you have a low capacity and you take a big risk with a lot of that capacity, mm. you're actually taking on a lot more risk uh, than somebody else. So just to give you a better example of that, the person who takes a $50,000 risk but has a capacity for 500 is actually emotionally very different than somebody who has 50 grand and takes a uh, 20 grand risk. Yep. The person who is is risking that 20 grand is risking a lot more relatively than the other person. Yeah, so it's all relative. Yeah, and so I think where people get tripped up is they look at rich people and they look at the kind of risks they take and at the scale and they think they have to take risks at that scale, but mm. they don't understand relativity. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say, you have to risk it big to make it big. But actually, in actual fact, the people that are richer than them or have more capacity are taking smaller risks relative to them. Does that make, am I being clear on this one? Yeah. No, yeah. that's an important distinction to make too. Yeah. So we've, I've kind of learned this one um, the hard way in, in, the, in my sort of limited experience in the property sort of field. You look at what these other people are doing and you're saying, these guys are making all these big bets. But when you actually understand what their, you know, I guess the size of their capacity, they're taking much smaller risks than, uh, than you are as a little guy. And quite often not with their own money. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so this one's really, really important and you need to think about uh, how much you can afford to put at risk. And there is some research around this. Um, people won't generally react if things change. If, say if I've got 100 grand and I put that at risk and then something goes wrong and it drops to 90, I'm not really going to change too much of my decisions. But if it gets below 90, it gets like more than 10%, that's when people start to emotionally get involved. Yep. Um, so it's important that whatever money you've got at risk, you're okay with that being at risk. And you need to also have that margin of safety, which is what Buffett and, and Munger and these types talk about. And that's why we talk about having that cash cushion, making sure that you've got money uh, that, that's sitting there and it's not at risk. And it's, it, the job of that money is there um, to be used in the case of emergency or for whatever else. Yeah, so I've noticed there that you've started to use, um, mention the word risk again a few times. Um, so I just wanted to, I guess, go back to that one more time just to, I guess it's it's fitted in with the context that you're using. Yep. Um, like I was saying before, um, you know, risk is is the possibility of, of not getting what you want. Um, and when you use it in the context of uh, relativity, yes. I guess it's saying that it would be considered higher risk if if you're using more of what you have, um, you're creating more possibility of um, an unexpected result. Yep. Um, as opposed to using less of what you have. Yeah. Um, that relativity, it's still it's still the risk um, that we were talking about before, the possibility of not getting what you want. Um, but I guess it's at a different it's scale. Sort of exposure, really, isn't it? It's yeah, a exposure. High, it's a higher yeah. level of exposure to risk. So if I'm putting ninety of my hundred away. Uh, or if I'm putting it to work, I'm exposing myself differently to somebody who's doing, who's putting less. Yeah. And that's not to say that's right or wrong, because this really just depends on what result you want, right? Yep. But it's just important to know how you are exposing yourself to risk. So those people who are, um, you know, really, really rich, and I've got $5 million and I'm putting 50 grand at risk, there's no exposure there. It's next to nothing. But if I've got 50 grand and I'm putting 30 at risk, that's a high level of exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, it, and it could probably be a, it can be a little bit of a tricky one to to pull those two different elements together. Yeah. Um, but when you can, it, it does make a, a big difference. Yep. Um, okay. So the first one was um, uncertainty. Yep. Second one being the capacity yep. that we've just talked about. Um, what's next? What's the A? 
So the A is ambition. So this is linked to how hard your money has to work for you. So how big, like how, how, how much, uh, how big are your goals? Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to retire early? Like, you know, we talk about, because if you want to retire early, your money's got to work fairly hard. Um, and how soon do you want to retire? It's got to work harder if that's the case. And so this kind of starts to dictate how much exposure you should take. Yep. Um, and you have to start to look at trade-offs, right? Because you might say, I'm not that tolerant of uncertainty, but I'm really ambitious. You got to reconcile those differences because you might want the world, but you're not prepared to give up anything for it. This is where you start to have hard conversations with yourself and say, mm. well, what's most important to me and what am I willing to accept here? And these are the, these are really, really important conversations um, because you making a decision in the face of that irreducible uncertainty, it's got to be based on what you're trying to achieve and then how the, I guess, how the cards are stacked as well. So it's, it's, I think there are a lot of people that go out there and say, I want the world, but I'm not prepared to give up anything for it. Yeah. Um, so this, this one's really, really important in, in the context of looking at the others. Yeah. Okay. So essentially there's a big difference between being somebody who wants to live in a, in a Taj Mahal on Torquay front beach. Yep. As opposed to somebody who's happy with a log cabin, um, living in the woods somewhere. Yeah. Um, the, the, the size of the decisions that they have to make yep. is, is relative again. It's how much, um, how much passive income do I want? How soon do I want that income? Yeah. Um, you know, that dictates your, your level of exposure that you should be taking, which is based on what we're just saying. So, for me, I'm highly exposed and I'm happy to be that um, because I want my money to work pretty hard. Yep. Um, so it's important, uh, really, really important dimension, this one, like rating yourself honestly on this scale and then looking at it and saying, all right, so I'm highly ambitious, but I've also got this kind of, I don't have a huge capacity, but uh, I'm also uncertain. How am I going to configure these sliders mm. in a way mm-hmm. um, that helps me get what I want without uh unduly putting myself um, at risk. Yep. Yep. Um, does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Cool. All right. What's, what's the last one? So the last one, uh, the I in the USI is uh, involvement. And I think this one is almost one of the most important. Uh, and it's a question that I, I know that very few people ask themselves. And that is how much work do I want to take on to achieve this reward? Mm. Um, because the reality is, uh, Sometimes there are some investment classes like real estate where your return will be based on how much work you do. Um, I know that Aussie Firebug talks about it a lot. I believe there's an episode where he talks about um, how he sold one of his investment properties. I think that's such a good episode to listen to. Yeah. Because he actually gives you, he gives you the real story about how he got his return. And he said, I don't really want to do that anymore because the amount of work that took um, and then I look at my time and I look at how I value my life and it wasn't really worth it for me. Um, and so real estate, typically there's a lot of involvement in, uh, a lot of involvement if you want to get a really, really good result. Otherwise yeah. you're outsourcing that and then that cuts into your return, right? So property managers, all these other middlemen come in and that sort of eats into what you get. Yeah. yeah I'd definitely encourage people to listen to that episode because I think that's a really common route that people take is... Uh, initially thinking that they want to have a high involvement mm. until they're highly involved and then realizing that they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, they sort of uh, bog themselves down in a little bit of mud yeah. um, in a time sense. And then 
have to undo a lot of that work. Yep. Um, to then to, to then drag themselves uh, yep. out of it. Yep. And like you were saying, to drag yourself out of it can cost a lot of money too. Yep. Um, one in you know taking on help, which is property managers and whatnot. Um, but also in transition. Mm. So moving away from that strategy or that, um, I guess, decision yep. to something else. Yep. Um, you take away the the ability to focus on one thing for a long time and and create a compounding effect. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of costs involved in transition. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's highly encourage people to listen to that episode for sure. I think that's uh, really crucial that one. Mm. Um, and the way I think about these four dimensions: uncertainty, capacity, ambition, involvement. I, I guess a, a good analogy is um you know, like the sound engineer. So, you know, you see in the, in the movies and that sort of thing where you've got people recording in the studio and they're pushing up all the dials. Yep. Um, and they're trying to make it, they're trying to find that perfect sound. It's a little bit like that where you've got to play around with these dials and figure out how you want to configure them uh, in order to get the right harmony, get the right sound, get, get, you know, get things humming along. Um, and that involves exploration. That involves uh, trial and error. That involves uh, a bunch of different sort of thought experiments and conversations think that's really really important because you can't have this conversation in your own head and think clearly it's super important to be able to talk about it and uh, talk about it with knowledgeable people yeah good call oh well maybe we can get a soundboard mate we might be able to make ourselves sound a little better (laughs) (laughs) we're working on it we're working on it hey um so let's dig into the next one so we talked about um self-awareness just now but let's talk about how people how we know where we should put our money um and i think what you're getting at there is that idea of asset allocation yeah yeah, yeah. So, so yep. define what's asset allocation. Yeah, so asset allocation is where your money is. It's your financial resources. So, what you own. Yep. And when it all boils down to it, there's probably only three types of assets that exist, and they are cash, property, or businesses, or otherwise known as shares. Yep. And when I say it all boils down, it's, there's a lot of different variations to those three. Mm-hmm. So you think about uh, cash to start with, you know, you might have yeah, money in your pocket, money under the pillow type thing, um, money in the bank, or you might have a term deposit, mm-hmm. which is money in the bank that's locked away for, you know, a fixed amount of time and you get paid a, a bit more interest for, from it. Yep. And then there's things like a government bond, which is probably a bit more uncommon, not known as well mm-hmm. uh, for people. And that's that's a, effectively a term deposit, except instead of a bank at the other end of it, it's uh, it's the government. Yep. And they they want to be able to raise funds for infrastructure or something like that. Yep. Um, and I think a good way to figure out if you're in a cash asset is to look at your income. Mm-hmm. And if it's interest income, then it's a pretty good ind- indicator that it's a cash asset. Yeah, okay. So that's the rule of thumb. So if you're getting interest, you know you're, that that money's invested in cash. Yeah, that's okay. right. Cool. Um, and then there's property, which you know I've got different uh, options there as well. So you might have the most common, which is residential. Yep. It might be an investment property that's being rented out. Uh, a commercial property, similar thing. It might be a shop front or a warehouse. Yep. And then there's things like real estate investment trusts, which is just. Uh, big conglomerates of, of properties, mm-hmm. um, that lets you, I guess, own more than one. Mm-hmm. And like the rule of thumb with that first one, if uh, a good way to think about or know if you're investing in property is to look at your income and if it is considered rent, yep. um, then, then you're likely in property. Yeah. Okay. So I'm getting rent. I'm in property. If I'm getting interest, I'm in cash. 
Yep. Cool. You're on the money. And then the last one being business or known as shares. Um, and this, this is a bit the same. There's a lot of different variations in ways that you can own businesses. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can own something direct, mm-hmm. your own personal business. And then there's um, things like index funds, which is a big, big pool of businesses um, just based on the size of them. Yep. And listed investment companies, which is just a, a similar to, might be similar to an in- index fund, except there's a, a company that owns it rather than a trust. Yep. And look, we're, pro- we're brushing over these right now, but I think we'll go into more depth on this stuff in other podcasts. But if we did, it would be like a six hour episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll go technical at some stage. <laughs> we'll go super technical. We'll get, we'll dive deep for those of you that want more information on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good, I think, just to, I guess, simplify it all back into the, into the big, big three, cash, yep. property and shares. Yep. And on the business front, as that rule of thumb, as we were saying before, a good way of knowing that you're in owning businesses is if you're being paid a, a dividend. Yep. So to recap on that, it's, if you're invested in cash, you're likely receiving interest income. If you're invested in property, then you're likely receiving rental income. Yep. And if you're invested in businesses, then you'll be receiving dividends. Yep. But they all have um, different personalities too, don't they? So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how they all differ in terms of, I guess, the movement of the money? Yeah, they definitely move in different ways. Different personalities is a good way of thinking it. Um, the way I've always thought about is they a different asset will give you a different ride. Yeah. Um, so a good way to think about it might be cash is a lot like a train on a track. Uh-huh. It's pretty clear where it's going and how it's going to move. Yep. Um, it's a little bit like puffing Billy. It's mm-hmm. not going to get you there very fast. Yeah. And we talked about inflation earlier. Sometimes it might feel like the train's going backwards. Yep. Um, and then property is more like, I, I guess, a big ship. It's a lot harder to move or change direction, but it's pretty consistent in where it's going. Yep. And just sort of trucks along. Yeah. It's a big beast. Yep. And then I guess shares, business is more like a car. Mm-hmm. It's... A more exciting ride. I guess you can pull over at any time and 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 change direction. A bit more versatile. Yeah, a bit more versatile. Yeah. Um, and it's easier to get in and out of. Yep. And move around as well. So when we talk about asset allocation, we're essentially talking about what kind of ride we want. Yeah. Where yep. we and how how far do we want to get, and what do we want that experience to be like. That's essentially what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 It's on the money. I think it's a it's an important point to note that. Uh, when we talk about these rides and these different asset classes and the experience you'll have during it and where they take you, this changes a lot. I know it changed a lot for me the more I got educated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before I came to see yourself, uh, you know, I was 100% cash thinking um, that was, you know, the safest, best option Yep. Uh, in a world of uncertainty. <laughs> um, but as I got educated and understood things at a much deeper level, uh, I guess my uh, my tolerance changed dramatically. We talked earlier about um, you know that level of uncertainty, um, the USI sort of index and that kind of thing. Yep, uh, that changed dramatically, and it, and that meant that basically I was uh, much more open to something like shares. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk more about you know our preferences later on. But just the main point I think to, to note is that um, with education and exposure, uh, your your preferences for asset classes can change dramatically. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely agree. And I think as you learn more about this, your view on what's possible actually changes too. Yeah. You know, we we often discuss this as we work with members. We do this life by design session, but we know that when people figure out how money works and start to understand investing, their idea of what the future can look like changes as well. Oh, dramatically, particularly around 
um, that form of income that we talked about, you yep. know, and we'd favor income investing and what type of income we're talking about and what we, what we have to do for it. Yep. Starts to challenge all your ideas of how you get ahead. <laughs> Massively. Um, everything you get taught about, um, you know, working hard and all that sort of stuff, you start to say, hang on, there are actually other ways. Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting process to go through. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's great. So let's talk next about, um, risk. So we talked about earlier, um, I guess, understanding yourself, understanding where you can put your money. And now we're looking at how do we evaluate risk? So what, when we, when we talk about evaluating risk, what we're actually really sort of talking about is how do we evaluate an opportunity? So now that we know that there's these different asset classes, how do we evaluate what risk we have to take on to get a reward, um, you know, at the other end of the, of the, uh, destimate, uh, at the other end of the journey or the trip, if you like, uh, how, how do we avoid making a big money mistake? That's basically what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate the, to be honest, I hate the word risk Yeah, because it can be used interchangeably in so many different ways and it can be really taken in the wrong frame as well. Mm. Um, it's important to, I guess, break down different dimensions of risk to understand what it really is. Cause we, we mentioned earlier in the podcast, it being, I guess, a very, uh, a variation of what we expect. Yeah. The difference between what we expect and what the result actually is. Yep. But we need to sort of get underneath that a little bit more and, and look at different, as I said, dimensions so we can understand how you can look at opportunities and, and figure out if we should take one course of action or if we shouldn't. Yeah. And the way I look at these, I guess, these filters, if you like, or these models we're about to discuss is, um, a little bit like skill sets. So, you know, if I'm an extreme sports um, enthusiasts and I want to learn double backflips. I don't just go and try that. There are things that I do um, to basically work myself up to that, to make sure that when I do eventually uh, expose myself to that risk, I've mitigated everything. And that's essentially what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. yep. And I think it's also uh, important to note that I think a lot of people think that the risk and reward relationship is very linear. Yeah. If I take more risk, mm. I'm going to get more reward. Mm. But it's just not true. You can just make dumb decisions. Yeah, you can. <laughs> because you don't assess the, the different risks or the different dimensions of the risk of a, a decision. I reckon the only guarantee you get for taking on risk is learning. Yep. That's it. Good call. That's all you can hope for. Yeah, I like that. There's only there's no real failures and there's only learning. I like that. Yeah, and I think in the long term too, like if you stack learning on top of learning layers on top of each other, you sort you start to get good. <laughs> so <laughs> so you I, can't get ahead without taking risk in, in this world. Yeah. And the, the the hard thing with when it comes to money is learning through failure can be, um, it can be a, a, a really difficult thing to process. Yeah. And we don't have much tolerance in the, in the financial sort of area of our lives. We talk about it a lot. Um, we tend to flip on these pendulums, you know, so, you know, if you, if you dabbled in the stock market before you understood it and you lost your money because you sold low, which most people do, you'll start to tell stories like stock market, it's a casino, it's a, it's a, don't go in there, people just take your money, it's, you just lose your money. Yep. Um, but really what it is is you just haven't quite understood it. You didn't get the learning. Um, so there is a like, risk <laughs> that you don't learn because you don't, um, you don't tolerate the failure. Yeah, good one. All right, let's look at this, the dimensions of risk that I've just mentioned. So there's five major ones and these have been – heavily influenced by Brian Portnoy, who wrote the book, Geometry of Wealth. Um, I think this, the way that he's been able to simplify this into five dimensions has really cleared it up for us. Well, I think when I first learned these five dimensions, 
this is what I was talking about earlier on in uh, in the episode at the start when I talked about oh, you can see things a lot more clearly now. Yeah, and I understand exactly why uh, this investment or this option uh, might suit me better than another option. This these are these these ideas or these um, filters for thinking. I reckon they're critical. Yeah, nice. All right, so at a very high level, the five dimensions are time frame, concentration, complexity, leverage, and liquidity. And let's start with time frame. Yeah, so what do you mean when we, when we talk about time frame? What are you talking about there? Time frame is really looking at how long you're looking to leave your money invested where it is. So it might be, am I looking to get it back in one year's time, playing short? Yep. Or am I looking to get my money back 20, 30, 40, maybe never. Yep. And that's obviously a longer time frame. Yep. And when it, the way that it's related to risk is essentially the longer your time frame, the more certain you can be. So we know that the variability of what you're going to get can be quite dramatic in the in the first couple of years of any any investment, apart from cash, obviously. Yeah. Um, but the property or or shares. But the longer that you sort of extend out your time frame, the more sure you can be that you'll get the result that you want. And I think that's because a shorter time frame, you're going to be exposed to volatility, which is a direct. It's almost in direct correlation to human emotion. Yeah. You know that we're weird creatures. We we overreact. We underreact. We do weird stuff. Right. If you looked at the stock market after Trump came in as president, it dropped hundreds of millions of dollars in a day. Did, did that actually happen? Did the businesses all of a sudden get shit? I don't think they did. Yep. Um, so when we talk about the short time frame, short-term time frame, that reflects human emotion. And that can be great if you win. It <laughs> can also be horrible if you lose. Um, but as we go out in terms of long-term, and we spoke about this in uh, part one, that's more reflective of human progress. Yeah. So if I'm investing for the long run, I'm investing in human endeavor and human progress. If I'm investing in the short term, I'm trying to profit off emotions and volatility that comes with that. Mm. And um, the, the I guess the hard thing is if you're investing for the short term, it's a zero-sum game, which means that if you win, you've got to win at somebody else's cost. That's right. Um, whereas if you invest in the long run, this is what made me feel really good about investing. I get ahead if humanity gets ahead. Yep. Um, yeah. So- there's a real, very clear difference between those those things. Yeah, I think Peter Thornhill used a really great analogy to explain this when he was talking about the weather. And the way he, the way he sort of uh, explains this is you can't predict the weather on a day-to-day basis, but you can predict the climate. Mm-hmm. So we know that seasons move in trends, yep. but we don't know what a day-to-day looks like. Yep. Meteorologists uh, seem to be getting further and further from being able to predict the, the weather tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same with a- any types of markets. Yeah. But we can foresee what a climate will be like mm-hmm. in different parts of the world and different seasons. And another trouble with, I guess, playing the shorter time frame is if you are consistently looking at making short-term decisions, then you have to make a lot of transitions. You need to change your strategy often, change your asset often. So yeah. And when you're doing that, you're actually taking on a lot of costs as well. Yep. So if you're always making a two-year decision and then each at the end of each two years, you're looking to do something else, quite often there's acquisition costs or there's sale costs or mm. or, or just losing out on the, the compounding effect of being focused on creating one thing for a long period of time. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, that it's not obvious when you start talking about, you know, how do I make my money work for me? 
basically the more moves you make with your money, the more middlemen get your money. That's pretty much the rule of thumb. That's it. The more moves you make with it, the more the middlemen take. Yeah. Um, all right. That's, that's a really good one. So uh, let's go to the next one. So let's go to uh, concentration. What do we mean by concentration here? Yeah, so concentration is really the other end of the spectrum of diversification. And diversification is probably used more commonly when yeah. talking about investing. So people would have heard of it when people say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. Concentration is when you put them all in one basket. Mm. So, Well, really what he's talking about here, though, is how concentrated are you in terms of your assets, right? It's not saying be concentrated. It's saying how concentrated are you? Are you diversified or are you very concentrated? Yeah, so the more concentrated you are... I guess the more, the more right you need to be. Yep. Um, so a really common one, particularly here in Australia is, is buying, buying your own home, mm -hmm. focusing on paying it down, getting some equity mm -hmm. and then using the equity to buy a second home. Mm -hmm. So in that, that instance or in that case, you're really highly concentrated because you've got all of your money in or your wealth in property. Yep. And you might even have it in the same suburb. Yep. In the same town. Quite common. Heard about someone last week, bought in the same suburb, um, leverage right up. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's to us, that's a highly concentrated decision or mm. um, asset mix. Mm. Um, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, it might be that you own three, four, 500 different types of businesses mm -hmm. um, or even thousands across the world. Mm -hmm. um, and they all work in different ways. They're, they, um, businesses in different sectors. In different regions of the world, all over, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, I reckon a really the the what the, the best way I understood diversification was um, Mihir Desai's uh, his little parable or his sort of I guess it's a thought experiment, right? Yes. Um, he um in the Wisdom of Finance, I think we refer to this book so much, but it was um he says, look, imagine you got. Precious resources. So for, for our example, let's say you've got 10 kids, right? That's your most precious resources. <laughs> and war breaks out and you need to get, you need to get uh, your kids from Australia over to Europe, but you can only get there by boat. All you want to do is make sure your kids are going to get to Europe. That's your number one priority, okay? Um, and his example is, would you want to send all 10 kids on one boat, on one route, or would you put each of the 10 kids on their own boat and all take 10 separate routes if you're trying to maximize the, the possibility that they're going to get to Europe. Yeah. And this is obviously considering different weather, storm patterns. You don't pirates, know. It's, you don't know any of those things. Icebergs. And that's, I guess this is the whole point of diversification, right? Nobody knows what the future is going to hold. And so when you're really concentrated to your point, you have to be right. So mm -hmm. if I'm going to put all those kids on one boat, I better bloody hope that the route that I choose is the right route. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if... I don't know, and I accept that, and I can put them on 10 different boats, uh, then my probability of getting what I want goes up. It's, um, you know, you can delve into the mathematics of this if you like, uh, but basically it's a bit of a free lunch diversification. You can get more of what you want to take for taking less risk. It's a, it's a great idea. Yes. Um, it's just that, you know, we feel very, I guess we feel very safe with property in Australia, and, and I think we get concentrated because of that, as you said before concentrated in one asset class, but it's not just that. It's concentrated. If you have an investment property, it's concentrated in that one asset class on that one street in the one suburb, and it might even be right next to where you are. So if something happens in your area, all of a sudden the value of your house has gone down, but now also your investment property. Uh, yeah, if somebody gets murdered in that suburb or 
or there's a, uh, I don't know, a smelter or something decides to get built just in the in the outskirts of that suburb. You know, Report comes out that um, the 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 soil is uh, is toxic. Yep. Um, these type of things happen all the time. Um, you know, it's funny. People probably laugh about that that the murder example you just gave, but I did see a research paper um, a couple of weeks ago that said uh, the properties will drop on average about twenty percent value. Uh, within three months of mm-hmm. the murder, and it takes a, a long period of time for that to be forgotten. Yep. Um, so that is concentrating your risk, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And like you said before, particularly in Australia, there's a real preference towards familiarity mm. that I guess gets in the way of people making diversified decisions. Yeah. Makes them lean into concentration yep. massively. Yep. One. All right, cool. So that's a, that is concentration. The next one being complexity. Complexity is really about how many moving parts there are, and it makes us think about the the en- engineering principle, which is effectively the more moving parts there are, the the more likely that a systematic failure might occur. And when you talk about moving parts, what you're actually talking about is people, right? Because it's people that are irrational. Yeah, people, which is obviously closely linked to the different decisions that need to be made as well. Yeah, and when we talk about the people. The most important person we're talking about is yourself, correct? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. yep. you are the biggest thing in your own way when it comes to investing. <laughs> so you're talking about how many decisions will I have to make? That's it. How many interactions will I have to make with other people that are making moves on my behalf? Uh, and how often will that happen? That's right. So sometimes the investment might seem more complex the way that it works. Mm-hmm. Um for me personally, it's about the complexity of my situation. And yep. and I find that simplification is the best form of medicine with most of this stuff. Yep. The less I need to do, the less decisions I need to make, the better the outcome will be. Yep. And that's the way I think of it as well. Like the more I have to get involved, the more my bandwidth is stretched, the less time, energy, attention, and focus I can put on to maximizing my human capital and the return I get from that. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity cost, which we've discussed in the past, um, that comes with complexity. The higher the complexity, um, the more you're going to be spread thin as well. Okay, so complexity. What about the next one? What about leverage? Yeah, so leverage is, I guess, using debt to get more of an asset than what you might otherwise be able to afford on your own. Mm-hmm. And what's an, is, wait, wait, what's an example of that? Is that is that um, would that be like what you said before? Right, um, I've got equity in my home. I'm going to loan against that to go and get an investment property. That's leverage, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. So okay. you wouldn't be able to otherwise afford it. So yep. you use uh, debt from the bank or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. I'll know if I've got leverage if I'm paying interest for a loan that I took out to acquire an asset. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. That's it. Cool. And leverage can be a really great thing. Uh, I'm actually quite for using leverage because it can accelerate. You know, if you're thinking long-term, it can accelerate you getting to where you want to go. Yep. But then if you're thinking short term time frame that we discussed before, then leverage can really it can, I guess, magnify your gains, but it can also magnify your losses as well. Yep. So it's a bit of a double edged sword. And the the blog that you wrote on this, that is a double edged sword. <laughs> yeah. Actually. Yeah. Um, is well, a really good place for people to start if they want to learn more about leverage and, and how that works. I think this one's super personal, right? It's um do you get better from financial pressure? Does financial pressure focus you? Uh, does it help you become more of yourself? Does it help you find new levels of performance, um, productivity, all those kind of things? Um, 
it could be great for you. Mm -hmm. I wrote that blog to understand what it was like for me. And so there are um, different ways, I guess, different ways to classify how you relate to leverage that are, that are a part of that blog that I think can be really handy for people. You want to know whether you're taking a calculated risk, whether you're, uh, it's a Hail Mary. You want to know whether it's you're walking that tightrope or not. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely tr- uh, go on to cashflowdojo.com, um, search for that blog, Dead is a Double-Edged Sword, because uh, it can it can give you a lot of, uh, I guess, self-awareness around how you relate to the concept of leverage. Yeah, and leverage is most commonly, um, I guess, linked with debt. Mm. But the way, the context that we often use it is also you're leveraging other people's time yep. as well as resources. Yep. So it's, it's not always, and, and talent is the other one, yep. time, talent, and, uh, and money. Um, so it's not just looking at debt and thinking about how it can change, I guess, the risk evolved. Mm. It comes with commitment, um, but it's also thinking about how when you leverage other people's time and talent, um, I guess the consequences of that, what that could be too. Well, it creates obligation. Yeah. So, you know, if we put somebody on in business, we're obligated to pay that person. Yep. That creates more obligation for us in the business. Now our overheads go up. And it's the same with leverage, financial leverage, right? If I, if I do take that equity out and I go and get an investment property, the interest creates an obligation that I have to jump now every month um, in order to maintain ownership of that property. So that is what creates the pressure. Um, do you want that pressure? Will it actually add to your life? Will it detract from it? These are all very personal questions that I think people need to ask themselves before they just jump in and say, well, I guess I've got equity. I should get an investment property. Yeah, that's it. And you also caused um, or created leverage between you and uh, the renters in that property as well. Yep, that's right. Now, anytime something breaks down, it's on me. Yep. Um, I've got to do things for them too. Yeah, good one. I think people can get a bit addicted to leverage too though, right? Like we talked earlier about that idea of resulting, um, you know, that, uh, that concept from gambling. I think that this one's super important because if you use leverage and you don't quite understand it and you get lucky and it does accelerate your gains, you mm-hmm. think you're a genius. Mm-hmm. And you just think, I'll just do more of what I got. I'll just do more of what I just did. And uh, this is where we see people get into a lot of trouble, um, particularly uh, in, in um, you know, the real estate part of Australia because it's that whole idea of the property empire, right? But that is basically a whole bunch of leverage in a very concentrated asset. Yes. Um, so you put those two things together, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. It's, um, it, it's one to really watch out for because it's, it's, it's quite alluring, leverage you can mm-hmm. say look how much look how much growth i got um and then you can you, you'll just keep doubling down taking more risk in this way not understanding exactly what you're doing yeah go on all right so that's leverage let's go to liquidity the last one the last of these five elements how would you define this one i'd say liquidity is effectively how quickly you can turn something back into cash mm-hmm. so it might be that you own a property or you might own some businesses how long does it take to get your money back. Mm-hmm. And this is important because things happen in life that make you change direction. So you, you need to be able to be um, somewhat agile mm. and have the ability to to make changes with, I know that you can make changes as well so you don't feel sort of trapped in one mm. direction. So if I'm highly liquid, I'm, 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 I've got the ability to be agile and move with things. But if I'm illiquid, if it's very hard for me to convert my assets into cash, I don't have that many options. I can't move as much with the times, yeah? That's it. Yeah. But then the other, on the other side of things, not having liquidity means you can't change your mind and it becomes a barrier between you and your emotions as well. Yeah, it's a good point. I think it's one it's one for property if you're the kind of person that doubts whether you can be disciplined uh, because 
property is a highly illiquid asset. So sometimes it saves us, saves us from ourselves. That's why some people say it's a forced saving mechanism, right? So once again, this is why self-awareness is really, really important. Yeah. So you may trade off and say, look, I'm happy to concentrate my risk um, in this way uh, because I don't trust myself um, to stay the course if I'm in more liquid assets. Yeah. And I think it's probably why superannuation exists in Australia as well. Yep. Because the government realized that people couldn't stay committed for the long course, long term yep. on a, a liquid asset. Yep. Yeah. It creates that nice um, barrier between us and we can't do anything. It's, it's just, it's kind of like behind this curtain. Um, we're pretty apathetic towards it, and actually, that works in our favour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though most, even though we can make changes to it, not many people do for that reason. And there was a really good study done by I think it might have been by Vanguard, who looked at the lifetime value of investing in an index fund and compared it compared between being able to touch it, so human behaviour playing uh, a role, mm-hmm. versus not being able to touch it. Yeah, and the difference between that was pretty dramatic. So, yep for for it was pretty much the cost of human involvement. Yeah, something like forty percent. Yeah, it was very high. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I believe I'm pretty sure it was in um, Portnoy's book that he referred to. It, it yeah. was definitely Vanguard research, but uh, they looked at people that were invested in the exact same assets inside of super and outside of super. So inside of super being high friction, being you know more of a black box that people won't really touch or think about, and outside yep. of super being money that they can access and touch and, and get if they need to. And yeah, the, the cost was quite high. Yeah, I think that's... But the rule of thumb the rule of thumb here is that the more liquid something is, the more volatile it is, right? The more it moves up and down in price quicker. That's why shares um, appear uh, in parentheses here, riskier because they move a lot Yep, because they're sold all the time. Whereas um, with property, it's not being sold as much. So you don't really see... You don't really see those movements in price. You only see what you bought it for and then what you sold it for. And it looks like a straight line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so our perception of uh, those two things in terms of volatility is different, right? It's very skewed. Yeah. Um, I think Thornhill does a great job of this in Motivated Money by saying, look, if your home was auctioned every day, you'd think real estate's a really risky asset. Yep. Uh, because every day it's going to reflect human emotion, how people are feeling, their perceptions what's going on in the, you know, the economy, all that sort of stuff. Even just the weather. It could be the most, I'd say it would be the most volatile asset you own. Yeah. People's perception of it might be that it's the most risky asset they own. Yep. It's purely a perception thing. It's purely a perception thing. The reality is very different. They, they, they We know that in, in terms of returns, they're, they're pretty comparable over time. Yep. Um, but it's just that uh, the ride's different because of yep. of that sort of, uh, that idea of liquidity and how it impacts this this thing called volatility. Yeah, good one. So that's the five dimensions, right? So we've said time frame, we've said concentration, complexity, leverage, liquidity. Uh, I reckon when you run any opportunity or, or any investment through those five things, and then I guess cross-reference that with that USI index we talked about before, yep. your tolerance for uncertainty, your capacity to deal with it, your ambition as a person, and then how you involved you want to be, you can make quite good decisions about whether you should, should or shouldn't put your money somewhere. We've got a really good understanding of yourself, but you've also got a really good understanding of the opportunity. Yep. And I guess where those two meet is is where you can really set yourself up. Yep. Let's talk about the last one we the, of those fundamentals you spoke about at the top. So the rules of the game. So self-awareness, yes. And then ability to um, understand where your money can go and the different options you have. Uh, 
now understand risk and, and evaluating opportunities, then we've got these rules of the game. So what do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so this is probably largely looking at how, I guess, regulation works. Yep. And I was actually watching uh, Netflix this morning. I was watching, what was it called? It was the the Explained series, it's called. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. And have you seen the Billions, Billionaires episode? No, I don't think I have. No, you have to check it out. Yeah, so this episode looked at billionaires around the world and and what it does it's it's pretty much explaining how how it works effectively why why people become wealthy and whatnot and it made a really good contrast between people who earn money from labor so going to work doing their job versus those who earn income from capital mm-hmm. from investments mm-hmm. so ownership and the people who earn income from capital pay a lot less tax than those who earn income from labor. Yep. Because the system has always been designed to reward those who own. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you reckon that is? Well, I think largely lobbying. <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah. I reckon it's because if you own something, you give other people more opportunity. So I contribute more to the economy if I'm an owner of assets um, because they create opportunities for other people to put that that, that capital to work. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. That's probably that's probably the fundamental basis. Yeah, and then over time they've been able to lobby to keep it that way. Yeah, bloody <laughs> they have. Um, but it's really, I think it's it highlights the fact that the system is designed to reward those who who own assets and earn money from money making. <laughs> yep, from their money machine. Yeah. So the rule of thumb there is: if you're earning money from sweat, you pay more tax. Yep. If you're earning money from your money, you pay less tax. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too much of the time, people actually make decisions based around paying less tax. So that's what, you know, think about negative gearing became a bit of a, a hot trend here, um, probably about 10, 15 years ago, and you obviously still see it now, but it's making decisions about wealth creation off the basis of paying less tax. Yeah. I think it's probably largely influenced by uh, accountants in our, in our culture. Yep. Massively. Um, it was actually, I remember, I remember when I was studying my master's degree and some of the texts, there was actually, they made the comment about negative gearing in particular and they're like, uh, negative gearing is a tax effective way to lose money. Yeah. (laughs) I think that really speaks to the, the mindset of investing for income because it's not really investing. You're actually losing money. Yeah. If you're negatively gearing. So negative gearing to explain to people is, um, it's essentially when, the costs of the investment outweigh the income of the investment. I reckon it's the same mistake as uh, you know the person that goes to the shopping mall and says, "I saved a bunch of money. I bought this stuff at a fifty percent off." Yep, it's the same mistake. It's like <laughs> yeah. no, you wouldn't have spent the money. It's it's the same mental error. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're doing that with our financial lives in the hope that one day our or whatever the asset is is worth a lot more. That's right. Um, and that's living in hope. That's not investing. There's no income there. Remember, we talked about what investing is. That's getting an income. So, if uh, you know, if you're negatively geared, by definition of of our definition, you're not investing. You're actually hoping. That's it. You're making speculations on the price of the asset, yep. as opposed to partaking in the profits. Yep. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just understanding what it is and mm-hmm. what it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be called an investment property, but if it's negatively geared, it's not really investing. Mm-hmm. It's living in hope. For sure. And I think another another one to touch on from a tax perspective is 
we're actually rewarded for investing for a longer time frame as well. Mm. Um, so I guess it's the government trying to help people increase their time frame so they um, they can have more certainty around their assets and there's less of that transition. Yep. And to stamp out, I guess, more trading type activity as well. But you can actually get, in Australia, you can get a discount on your capital gains tax if you own an asset right now for longer than 12 months. Wait, so define capital gains tax? So capital gains tax is, I guess, the increase in the value of the thing that you own mm-hmm. if, when you decide to sell it. So you you buy, let's say it's a property, you buy it for 500000 then you sell it for 550000 You pay tax on that 50000 mm-hmm. at your marginal tax rate. Yep. But if you've owned it for 12 months, the way it is right now, um, you can get a 50% discount on that. So you only pay tax on the 25000 instead of the 50000 Yeah, cool. So it's obviously a pretty dramatic saving yep. um, if you decide to sell your asset. I love how they sell it to you like, they're doing you a good job by only taking half. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. That's a great sell. Yeah. Um, but it, it is interesting. Like these rules, you know, if you do understand the rules, you can play a lot smarter. Yeah. Uh, and I guess knowing them, they change all the time and there's all these little iterations and things like that. So you can't be expected to keep abreast of all this stuff. And I think that's why sometimes getting advice is a really good idea. Um, the people that are, it's their profession to stay on top of this stuff can be quite handy. And um, I know for myself, the way I think about using an advisor, it might be an accountant or anything like that, mm. is um, it should, it should the advice itself should save me more than it costs. Um, that's my kind of rule of thumb. So um, I think at times, you know, you can learn, you can definitely learn a lot of this stuff yourself for sure, but keeping abreast of the changes is really important too. Yeah, definitely. I think we should do a whole episode effectively on how to choose a good professional, good advisor too. Definitely. In this current climate, I think it's something that's um quite quite important for sure. Yeah. I think the last thing to touch on, because we're talking about the rules of the game, I guess tax being a big part of that is, and this will be a whole nother episode as well, is franking credits here in Australia yeah. um, being such a big, um, a great, uh, I guess, addition to income investing as well. All right, so I'm going to pull you up again. Define franking credits. <laughs> <laughs> franking credit is is when a company has already paid tax, Yep. so they pass on a credit to you. Uh, it's still income to you, but it offsets how much tax you pay. Yep. So you pay less tax. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like I've got the shares and I get paid income on the shares. The taxes are already been paid on that income, so they shouldn't double tax me. Yeah. They should actually recognize that the tax has been paid, so they should give me a cut based on that. Yeah. Paul Keating brought this in in the late 80s, I think. It was. It used to be, and it still is in a lot of economies, where uh, the company will get taxed and then you'll get taxed as well. It's called double taxation. Yeah. So now it's passed on as a credit. And it's, a, it's something to learn more about because for some people, you can actually earn more income yep. and pay less tax. Yeah. Which is pretty, it's pretty cool. And I reckon uh, the first time I learned about franking credits, I think we're going to definitely need to do a, a whole episode on franking yeah. credits. Um, so if, if you didn't follow that, it's okay. <laughs> um, it, it is very actually quite important to get your head around though too because the bottom line is for Australians, we're actually better set up than most companies around the, around the world to create a passive income, right? Most countries, yeah. Yeah, we, we have a much better opportunity to create a passive income uh, than, than pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, um, because yeah. of those rules. And if you're not leveraging them, it's at your loss. Yeah, definitely. That's good.
All right, I think that's been a pretty meaty episode. And to be fair, I reckon this has taken us a few goes to get this hopefully somewhere close to right. It's just such a meaty topic, investing. And we could spend hours and hours and hours digging into all these ideas uh, that we've sort of spoken about. But what I'm keen to do before we wrap this up is, I guess, look back through the lens of what we've discussed uh, and explain our own approach. So for me, why do I favor an income investing approach specifically around business and shares? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in the context of what we've discussed, what do I know about myself? What do I know about uh, asset allocation? What do I know about how to evaluate risk and opportunity that sort of pushes me in that direction? Yep. Um, So for me, going back to the start, right, using that USAI index, uh, I know that I have a pretty high tolerance for uncertainty. I'm okay with not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. And I'm okay with knowing that over time, um, you know, there's variability uh, because I do understand that the longer the time frame, uh, you know, the more certain you can be. And I do believe in human progress. So, um, you know, capacity wise, uh, like I sort of mentioned in my story, I had a decent capacity when I did start to sort of invest so I could afford to be exposed in a certain way uh, without having all my financial capital at risk. Um, and then I looked at um, ambition. So I really wanted my, my money to work hard for me. And we just discussed how the rules are set up with regards to passive income investing and franking credits for shares in Australia. And that's why that sort of pushes me in that direction. Um, and I also know that I don't want to be involved. I want my human capital to work as hard as it can right now. I don't want to be distracted by anything. And so it's sort of, again, it's another mark for, for shares for me. Um, when I evaluate risk as well, it's fun. It's ironic that I consider shares the most conservative part of my portfolio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's because, uh, from a time frame perspective, I see the risk getting smaller and smaller over time. And I know that I'm invested for at least 10, 12, 15, 20, 24 years or more. Uh, so I'm quite comfortable with that. And then, um, from a concentration point of view, we favor, I favor that index approach, right? So I don't invest in one business that would be concentrated. Well, I mean, I do in ours, <laughs> um, but in terms of where my financial capital is tied up, you know, it's tied up in an index, which is basically a big basket of stocks that spread out over Australia and across the world. Yep. So that means my capital is on a lot of different boats going on a lot of different routes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is exactly how I want it because nobody knows what the future is going to look like. Um, complexity, I don't have to make any decisions other than press the button and send the report to the accountant at the end of each year. He does all my tax for me and tells me how it all kind of ends out, uh, sort of ends up. Uh, and then um, from a leverage point of view, zero leverage. I've got a low tolerance for leverage. I don't, I, I'm, you and I differ there mm. a little bit. Um, and that's just a self-awareness thing. I think in the future, I may use leverage, um, you know, to acquire more of these assets, but it'll be, it'll be a sort of like a dip the toe in the water type approach for me. Um, and then liquidity. Uh, I am someone that likes optionality. I want the ability to change my mind. And that's another tick for me for shares because I know that I can get my money back in two to three days Mm. uh, and that's impossible um, in any other asset class other than, I mean, cash, you can get your money back straight away because it's right there. But when we compare that to real estate, you know, it can take up to three to six months or longer. Um, And then in terms of those rules of the game, I know that what we spoke about before, the more my money's working for me, the less I'm paying in tax. So Mm. those franking credits actually decrease my personal tax liability. Mm. Um, it's one of the ways that I do manage my tax on, uh, on an annual basis. And I consider that 
um, a little bit of a, a little bit of a secret sort of cheat code almost, you know, when I first understood that, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Mm. I can earn more money and pay less tax if I configure things correctly. And it's knowing something that not many people know about too. It is. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, the game for me is just, it's pretty obvious. If you look at the rules and how it's set up, what you're trying to do is get your human capital, make that work as hard as you can, and then save as much of that as you can. So you've got a difference between what you're spending and what you're earning. Put that difference to work as much as you can so that you can build that financial capital. Because the more that money is making money for you, the less personal tax you're paying. Yep. Uh, and actually, the more you're contributing yep. to the economy. So that's why I favor that income investing approach, um, specifically in the share market. I want a truly passive income. And I don't want anything to distract from that. You're 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 pretty much the same, but there's some slight differences for you, yeah. Yeah, only slight differences. I think um, when I think about time frame and feeding the money machine, I really think when I put it in, I have no expectation of getting it out. Yep. The capital part, it's purely the dividends that I want to be making decisions about. Yep. So when I put it away, I you know I expect to to die with that capital still invested, mm-hmm. but I hope to have a lot of dividends coming in that's that I've got choice um yep to what I want to do with it and I think I'm a lot more comfortable with leverage maybe just because I've done a lot of I guess analytical technical sort of uh, modeling of this stuff and I can see the benefit of you know how much it can accelerate your your progress yep. with this stuff and quite often obviously people make the comparison between buying a property or buying um, an index fund and it's always a little bit distorted because one is heavily using uh, using leverage. Mm. The properties, you know. I don't know anyone to... that's ever bought a property with cash. No, I actually don't either. They're always, often, always using leverage. 80, 90% in a lot of cases um, of it is, is a loan. And, you know, so for me, I, I look at leverage still on an index front. That's still my preference for sure. Um, but, you know, I look at 30, 40, maybe 50% mm. use of leverage as well, just to obviously accelerate that. Um, so I think, you know, we have a very, very similar um, approach. There's just some small iterations. And, you know, for me, when I first understood how index investing worked, it became it pre- became pretty obvious that that was the right path for me because, I love the idea of just being able to put in little bits or bigger bits here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you know, it might be each month. I might put in five hundred one month. I might mm-hmm. put in two thousand the next month, or it could be a big lump sum comes in and and it goes straight in the market. So it's just continually being able to see and feel progress as you can make contributions as well. Um, and and I guess also knowing that you've always also got. Um, sort of capturing the the best businesses in your in the world as well. Mm. Um, the way I think about it, index investing is like you're you're throwing a net over the the strongest fish in the ocean. Yep. Say it's a Australian one. It's 200, 200 businesses. Yep. It's capturing the strongest two hundred fish in the ocean. Yep. And as some fish, I guess, fall away and they're no longer the the strongest fish, they fall out the back. Then you know new fish come in and and take over. Yep. Um. So you're always capturing the the strongest swimmers, mm. um, the best businesses. Without having to do anything. Yeah, without having to do anything. And it's always in perpetuity. Yep. So that is always going to be a constant and you don't actually have to do anything. So I guess when, when you go back to complexity, it's it's reducing complexity because you don't have to do anything, but you're always still capturing the strongest fish. Yeah. Um, so understanding that for me was, I guess, a real... Um, 
for a trigger moment where I was like, yeah, okay, mm. that makes sense. Mm. And I think that will always make sense. Yep. And I liked your comment before when you were like, you think stocks are the least risky part of my portfolio. Um, I think exactly in the same, in the same way. Yep. Um, because I guess when people talk about um, your most common barbecue talk is the risk of losing everything, right? Yeah. Um, when I think about the possibility of losing everything, maybe if I had a, a property that was leveraged, in most yep. cases it will be, um, you know, say say it's 80% leveraged, it's the, the value of property goes down by 20% and I've effectively lost everything that I have. Yep. Whereas if I invest that in the markets and, yep. you know, say it's a 200 businesses in Australia, then for me to lose all of my money, those 200 businesses have to go bankrupt. Yeah. And could you imagine the state of the world, the state of Australia, if the top 200 businesses in Australia went bankrupt? Oh, we're talking apocalypse. It would be madness. I would have, um, you know, the, the windows would be boarded up. Money's the least of your worries then. <laughs> you've got you've got no use of money. You know, you can't go to the supermarket and buy groceries. You can't yep. turn the power on. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no gas and electricity. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't even buy petrol to drive your car anywhere. Yep. You know, so. I um, think that's, you know, just to dig in on that, that is a shocking point. Like if you, for me to first understand this, I know I had this feeling that, you know, it's different to when to when our parents grew up. You know, it's a very different sort of landscape. Um, you know, particularly with regards to how quickly you can pay off a property. You know, how much disposable income people have, how many careers we'll have. Uh, yep. And I know for me, like I look at our generation, I'm like, I don't understand why property is still a thing because it doesn't match what we want from life at all. And I'm not saying. That property is a bad thing, but we all talk about, we all want memories. We all want, we don't want, we don't want to wait. We want to live the most of our lives now. Um, sometimes buying a property, it, it leverages us up. It puts us at huge risk. We're concentrating all our resources in that one asset. Mm-hmm. And then we're actually reducing our opportunities to live that life and lifestyle that we want. So that's why I say stocks are the conservative part because there's no leverage. I'm highly diversified. I'm not concentrated. Um, and I've got the ability to change my mind and I'm building a passive income mm-hmm. and that's growing year by year. Um, and that's creating more and more opportunities for me over time. Yeah. I'm not hoping that one day my portfolio will be worth X. Um, I just know that time is doing that heavy lifting for me. And in the meantime, that passive income is my marker. It's just continuing to build on itself, reinvest, build on itself, um, and get to a point where it can set us free. That's why we talk about escaping the rat race. Yeah, and and I guess not having to be in a cage until then as well. Yeah, <laughs> see, like for me personally, I love to travel. Mm. I want to be able to go overseas at least once a year, um, every couple of years, do bigger trips. Yep. So I don't want a geographical limitation. I want something that's going to move with me and be quite mobile. Yep. Uh, I guess a, a, a financial infrastructure that lets me do what I want now, but also give me what I want later. Yep. And I think this is the only vehicle that can that can do that for me. Yep. All righty. So, guys, let's wrap it up there. I think uh, we've got plenty out of that. Um, there has been a lot that we've covered. We've explained our position. Um, but it's before we do go, I think it's a good time to uh, just make the point that this is not financial advice. Never has been, never will be. Uh, if you're listening to the Passive Income Project, what you're listening to is financial education. All righty. So, it's always important that you think for yourself. And that is why we've taken so much time to, I guess, assemble and configure uh, 
some of the better mental models and some of the good thinking filters that you can use to think for yourself. Um, we've just justified and explained our position through the lens of these so that you can understand where we're coming from. We're not right. Other people aren't wrong. It's just the way we see it as, you know, with regards to our life and our lifestyle and what we want from life. Is there anything you'd add to that? No, I think that's spot on, on the money. Hey, before you take off, I'd love to ask you something. Are you getting value from our content? If you are, and you'd love to show us your appreciation, there are three simple ways you can do it. Number one, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Number two, rate and review. And number three, share this episode with someone you know who'll get value from it. Now, these might feel like small gestures for you, but they're actually big levers for us. By doing this, you'll allow us to continue bringing you world-class guests, create more content that's relevant for you, and reach more legends just like you. So if you're the kind of person who loves to give value for value, just choose one or all of those actions. Subscribe, rate and review, or share this episode. Many thanks in advance.